The Hangover card delivered an excitement hangover, and we're here to talk about it. It is Sunday, June 19th. I am E. Spencer Kite. He is Harry Powell, and these are the next day takeaways. Welcome, everybody, back to the show. ESK, Harry Powell, Sunday morning here in Abbotsford, Sunday afternoon in lovely London town for Mr. Powell. Good, sir. How are you? I am well, thank you, sir. How are you? I'm, I'm doing lovely. I enjoy getting up first thing on a Sunday morning and talking about a card like this. Um, I continued to like think about it and interact with people about it on Twitter in the wake of it finishing last night. And so to get up and jump in and dive in with you kind of picking up where we left off on our live stream yesterday, you, me and Ian sitting around watching fights, which has now quickly become my favorite thing to do with these fights is just watch them as opposed to listen to anything else. There's a lot to talk about. It was a uh, it was a pretty entertaining card from start to finish. Would you say? He's on mute. He doesn't know it, or something's happened with his audio. Oh, look at him! He can't even fucking use Zoom. Tell <laughs> you, lads. It's, I'm it's the one straight out of bed. He's the one that's been up for a while, but he doesn't yeah, know how to up. use his gear. Yeah, apologies, apologies. Um, I would agree. Actually, I would agree. I think. I think that the fight card, even on paper, looked brilliant. I don't think I expected it to go uh, to quite so many finishes with quite the brutality that we saw. And and I didn't expect some of the performances that we saw. But on paper, it was a card that had lots of interesting talking points, lots of interesting storylines going in. And obviously, you know, we saw some we saw some wild shit happen last night. So let's start with a little bit of that brutality. Let's start with a little bit of, of those stoppages and we'll actually probably work backwards through the card as we do it, because there were some fights over the course of this event that felt like the finish or the stoppage could have been made a little earlier. I think we agree that Phil Haas, the Phil Haas fight with Deron Wynn was a little bit late. Cody Stamen, Eddie Wineland, we talked in advance of it, just felt like a, a bad matchup to begin with in terms of of the pairing itself. And it just felt like there were a couple instances where either referees were out of position or they let things go just a little bit longer than they needed to where guys were getting absolutely mauled. We saw on the main card, the Joaquin Buckley fight, it stopped because nobody in Duraev's corner nor the referee wanted just, or the fighter himself wants to just say, now we can't do this anymore. My eye is swollen closed and I don't want him to punch me anymore. We have to wait for the doctor. And so the question I have for you, I mean, listen, I think we both agree, you and I, earlier stoppage, like stopping a fight a little bit early is always going to be better than a little bit late. How do we, or how do officials look at look back at some of those fights and find that sweet spot a little better? Because the Duran win fight to me is the one that really stands out. It was pretty clear pretty quickly that this is going to go one way. And yet it progressed almost to the end of the second round. And that felt unnecessary to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the answer is I don't, I don't know. Like I'm not, I'm not a ref. Uh, I don't, I haven't done the refereeing course yet, though uh, me and, and Ian are looking at, at doing it um, just to give us sort of a bit of a, a better understanding of, of what to expect. But, you know, I've listened to Mark Goddard talk a lot 
because I think he's the gold standard, right? And Herzog just doesn't do a ton of interviews or doesn't do a ton of public speaking, whereas Goddard, thankfully, seems to have taken that upon himself as sort of an ambassadorial role that he has to the sport, and I really appreciate that. Um, and he mentions a couple of things. You know, the first is time and place and rank that you're that you're refing, right? Obviously, all the fights that we're talking about were professional fights, but, you know, just to, to sort of bridge that gap, if you're in an amateur fight and you're seeing, I don't know, let's say a, a heel hook applied, right? And you know that fight is not going to tap. In an amateur fight, the referee could step in and be like, that's enough. Live the fight another day. In professional, you know, Goddard is saying, I have to let it, like, just by the rules, I have to let it go a little bit further than I would, especially in submissions. If I know that somebody's arm's going to break, and they're not going to tap, I have to let it break, you know? And then when it's broken, I can step in and be like, that's it, it's done, right? Your arm's broken. But if if a fighter wants to allow themselves to take a break, then he has to allow them to do that as the referee. Now, the, the difference, I think, is the criteria, as far as I'm aware of it, says that a fighter can only continue or a fight can only continue if a fighter is intelligent, intelligently defending, right? Now... That's a gray area to me, because in the heat of chaos, in the heat of you taking, uh, you know, some insane power coming towards you from a, a very large man in any in any weight class. Right. The, the fighters are generally larger than your average people that, that weigh the same. Uh, what is intelligent defense? Because I think that is an interpretation for everyone. For some people, it'll be to, to cover up and to duck and rolls. For some people, it'll be to shoot their shot. For some people, it'll be to try and clinch. For some people, it'll try and be just to fire back blindly. You know, I think that they're probably, and, you know, maybe I'll get this from the refereeing course, but I think that it should be discussed a little more what intelligent defense actually means. But regardless, Deron Wynn was not intelligently defending himself. And the other thing that Goddard talks about is he must look into a fighter's eyes and see whether they are still in the fight, right? Because there may be portions where they're not intelligently defending because they're attempting to intelligently defend, right? Or they're attempting to get their wits about them to then do the thing. But right. if you look into somebody's eyes, as in my opinion, I looked into Darren Wynn's eyes through the camera lenses. Right. And he didn't want to be there, right? He wasn't able to win that fight there wasn't anything in him to win that fight now i'm gonna criticize herb here it feels as though when we watch fights of old it feels as though those fights go too long and they go too long because it's a bit of a just bleed mentality right whereas now with the evolution of the sport with the evolution of refereeing with the small tiny increments of evolution of things that we understand about trauma and about brain damage and about CTE, it feels as though the refs are now erring slightly on the side of caution of live to fight another day, right? And let's protect these fighters. There is every opportunity if we save you early for you to come back in six months, seven months to take another payday instead of you taking a Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman beating and, the, and that man never being the same again. Yeah, and I think that's the piece that, I think that part is why the occasional instances where it feels late, where it feels like it could have been done earlier, where we're all on Twitter saying, Jesus, somebody step in and stop this, feel so 
visceral almost feel so impactful is because we don't see them nearly as long as you said it used to be i want to give this person every last opportunity to fight their way out of it and that used to be the mindset is fight their way out of it and i think you and i talked about it and ian talked about it yesterday while it was the julian marquez gregory rodriguez fight where rodriguez is just absolutely piecing him up knocks him down i believe four times in the fight and Marquez's counter, his response is through those first couple is just to start winging back punches that have no, his back's on the fence and he's just swinging, hoping that something lands that backs him off. So he gets that moment. And I think even during it, you said, is this intelligent defense lads? Like, is this, are we just going to keep going? So this guy can throw hopeful shots that aren't going to land. And I think that's one of those spots where okay, referee, Mr. Referee, whoever it was for that particular fight, I don't remember offhand, you can step in here because this is just going this way. Let's save Julian Marquez the next 30 seconds of damage, minute of damage, whatever it's going to be, and move forward. And we do see that, and I want to make sure that we make that point. We do see that far more now than we did in the past, and I think most discerning fight fans most intelligent fight fans are always on the side of yeah it might have been a a hair too early but i'd rather have too early than too late with somebody walking out of the cage injured or struggling even more like julian marquez took a while to get up and get on that stool and i don't think anybody necessarily wants to see that as often as we used to and so i think we are progressing in the right way it is a very difficult kind of needle to thread, but uh, yeah, you have, you got, you've got the finger raise. I've got the finger raise. I think I think this is an important point to note, actually, and maybe this is a speaker's corner episode, but but we do have to remember there's some levels that this is a sport, right? And 100%. I think I think that finishing. Right. I saw uh Grabaka Hitman, shout out to Grobaka Grabaka Hitman, fucking um, always like one of the the goats of, of MMA Twitter, right? He posted something after the Adrian Yanez fight and Tony Kelly, and he was like, There was nothing sporting about that. That was a backyard brawl, right? That was that was a parking lot brawl. And it and it felt like that. But I think most when you watch most fighting, specifically in in uh, the UFC or in you know in MMA just generally. You must remember that a finish in MMA is not equivalent to a finish in a street fight, right? And shouldn't right. be. Right. Oftentimes, there are unwritten rules in a street fight that if you drop a man and, you, and he stays down, you leave him there, right? There are some times when it goes too far and people you know, continue to, to land strikes, land ground and pound, essentially, when a person's on the floor. And generally, everyone, that's the moment that the public will step in and be like, it's enough. Like, it's enough. He's had enough. Right. 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 But these fighters, these professional fighters, we must understand that this is not that. We may want to think that it is that. And it may be relational to that because the act of fighting is similar but this is inside a regulated organization in some fashion with a referee and we're we're paying money as spectators to consume a sport when we say an early stoppage there are times when there are an egregiously early stoppage when a fighter is nowhere near done 
and that they should be allowed to continue or they were def uh, intelligently defending themselves. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the middle ground. We don't want to see Darren wins. We don't want to see Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman's, but equally we don't want to see a fighter. If Darren win, if he, if Herbert stopped it, you know, uh, the first sign of things getting bad in the first round, I think all of us would have said, look, it wasn't looking great for Darren Wynn. But you got to let him work out of that. You've got to yeah. let him have a chance, right? It, you can't step in for a fighter. I think, and this is something that Goddard says and has said previously in the conversation that I've listened to, is he said, the fighter will tell you. When you're in there, the fighter will tell you when they want out, when they want saving. And he said something really poignant. And he said that, in that split second when you wave the fighter off and, and Goddard's on his knees and he's supporting the person's head or whatever it is, the look of mercy and love that those fighters give Goddard because they know, as tough as they are, they knew that today just wasn't their day, right? And that, I think, is when you're talking about a perfect stoppage because you know what a bad stoppage looks like? When you're cradling their head and they're not conscious for you to look at you, right? Right. But an early stoppage, obviously, is, you know, they're bouncing up and, you know, they were never hurt in the first place and whatever, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to note that the specifics that we're talking about are not early stoppages or we're not we're not in favor of early stoppages at all. We're in favor of stoppages before we see Marquez face plant the floor, before right. we see Deron win out on his feet before he's dropped right? right there are guys that are just sometimes they're too tough for their own good and it felt like darren Wynn was a bit of that it's the joaquin buckley albert Dariah fight and we will get to it specifically where at the end of the second round they the second round finishes you see the giant welt the giant mouse that is formed in sort of the eyelid that is covered up all of albert Dariah's eye he goes back to the corner they get the end spell on it do their work for for a minute and when the whistle goes to get everybody out, he's standing there with his arms over the cage, not looking at Joaquin Buckley. And the three of us on our stream said, this is done. It has to be done here. This is him not answering the bell. Yeah. And it took another 20, 30 seconds to actually call it off. But that's, that's what you're speaking about of what Mark is speaking about of the fighter will tell you if he was game, if he really wanted to go back out there and this isn't me you know, shitting on a fighter or anything like this or questioning their heart or anything like that. He knew he was, he knew there was no need. He knew he was beaten. And that's the, the closest he can come to flat out allowing himself to say, no, I don't want to go out here. That is him asking somebody to right. save him from right. himself. Right. Because he would have gone back out there. He absolutely would have. And he would have continued fighting as well. And, and I think that mouse would have exploded and it would have been gross yeah. and it would have left him on the sidelines for a good eight months. And there's an important point, I think, just as, as an addendum to add to what you've said. And it's that he realizes that within the rules and within the confines of the sport, he is done. If for whatever reason, Albert Jurayev had to go back out and fight, right. uh, fight again. <laughs> right. He would have done it, right? That's not right. what we're questioning here. Right. We are we are questioning when he he knew the damage that was done to his eye. He could feel it. He could understand that he could not see out of his left eye. He knows in the back of his head either 
this ref is going to stop it or the right. doctor is going to stop it. So his hands on the cage isn't like, ah, oh, fuck me, like get me out of here. <laughs> I think it's more like a, 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 a devastation in a way of like, I can't believe like this is, this is the way I'm going out. Right? And it's a little bit of giving them a tell, right? It's a little bit yes. of, well, my corner didn't do what they're supposed to do. So I'm going to stay here for an extra second and you're going to now see that I'm here and you're going to call the, the, the doctor in and we're going to sort this out properly. And if you asked him, he would do, he would answer that he wants to keep fighting in that tone and in that manner that says, I don't want to keep fighting. Yeah. And I have no problem with doing this by the regulations either. I think that there Same. was a, yeah, there was another, there was another, because that's the entire fucking point of them, right? There was a moment, there was a, <laughs> right. a, I can't remember specifically who it was. I can't remember, but it was Goddard refing, and somebody had a pretty bad, a pretty bad cut or a pretty bad injury. And Goddard brought the doctor in because Goddard, I don't think he was confident in just calling the fight off. The corner didn't stop it. He brought the doctor in for the doctor. And he essentially said to the doctor, like, I need you to right. to have a real look at this. And the doctor was like, ah, nah, it was a lady <laughs> fighting. I couldn't remember. And he was like, ah, yeah, she's grand. And then Goddard went to that fighter and said, you have 30 seconds to show me something or you are out of here. Right. And I think that that to me is a problem. And it's a problem because Goddard shouldn't have to be put in that position. He right. should have the power, I think, if the corner fails and the doctor fails, just call the fight, right? Yep, I agree. But e equally, I think there should be more stringent regulations and more uh, coaching of the coaches so that fighters and corners, uh, sorry, corners are more confident to pull their fighter. And come what may, if the fighter then turns around and says, well, you lost me this money and you did this and you did that, fine. Take that. As a corner, take that. Yes, it's your livelihood. I understand. But I think doing the right thing, and obviously this is an extremely nuanced point, and Sh Sean and I have talked about this on, on Speaker's Corner about corner stoppages and, and all this stuff. And it was a go great check chat. it out. Definitely right. go listen to it on the Patreon, you cowards. Right. And... Um, it's a, let's not get into that right now because this right. will take up the entire time. But, <laughs> but I, I do understand that it is a nuanced topic and it is very difficult. But the job of the corner is to do best by their fighter. And I mean that in when they're fighting, they're supposed to be giving them useful information in order to win the fight or keep themselves safe. And equally, in, the, in, in between rounds, they're supposed to give them a little bit more information, maybe some in-depth, maybe some of this, some of that. But when the time comes... I think your job as a corner is to save your fighter if you have to. I think that's a perfect way to end sort of this, this initial talking point. I do think you should go and listen to the speaker's corner episode about corner stoppages and, and those sorts of things, Sean and Harry. It's a great, it's a great podcast every week. Go and listen to it. The latest one is up for free um, on the, the severe MMA Patreon it is about damage. It is, or no, sorry, it's about opinions. And it is a very great conversation. Please go check it out as we dive into sort of the rest of the card. And, and as we do here, it's not necessarily about recapping results. With this main event, I don't want to get into judging discussions. They will happen elsewhere, are happening elsewhere. 
I want to get a chance to sit down and watch the entire fight back and score it again. I think my takeaway, and we talked about it yesterday as we were watching it, is that both of these men, Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett, Josh Emmett gets a split decision victory, proved and sort of reaffirmed their medal in that fight. This was the high-level, gritty battle that we sort of expected and that really, as I wrote about on Friday at OSDB Sports, is going to kick off or has now kicked off what is going to be a very interesting five or six weeks in the featherweight division as as a bunch of these top athletes compete as we get some definition again or or clearer picture of what's going to happen in this division that remains just so wildly entertaining anytime we get one of these fights for sure um i just i don't know what this means for the title picture you know josh emmett's come out and he's now said that he thinks that you know it's his time and and he thinks he's earned his shot and whatever and has he i don't know I really don't know. I think that's a very difficult question. And maybe I'm the wrong person to answer, ask these sorts of questions of just because generally I look at things from an analytical perspective and I, I care less about matchups and like obviously care about matchups, but I care less about who and for what they're fighting for. I just care about who's fighting who and whether it's going to be a good fight and what I can take from it. But I mean, I scored the fight for Cater again. I say this every time and, and with every opportunity, uh, I, I don't know how to score fights very well. I'm not very confident on scoring fights very well, but it's something I'm learning and it's something I will get better at. And then I'll be able to, to speak my opinion a little bit more freely. But, but as of right now, I watched the fight with obviously yourself and Ian. Um, I think we all had a similar opinion, but equally that could have been a problem. You know, we were all sort of saying the same things. We might've influenced each other. You know, there's, there's, there's plenty of room for that. Right. Um, but uh, what I did take away from it is that it was a close fight. It was a great fight. I thought both men performed really, really well. In between rounds, both men made a plethora of adjustments. It was adjustment and adjustment and adjustment. And that's when you know that you're in a supremely high-level fight. I think uh, it would be nice to have some new blood in that division. Uh, my question, if Josh Emmett were to get the nod, is where's Arnold Allen, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I think there are some other fighters in there that have you know, got, got, got some name value. I would like uh, I would like to see Josh Emmett get a title shot. I think you know for, for nothing more than just to get some new blood moving, but I, I I would say that I'd like Arnold Allen to get the shot first, um, and then we can see Cater against the the loser of Rodriguez and and Ortega. So I think there's a way for Josh Emmett to get a championship fight, and I was going to include sort of all of the permutations in the piece I wrote on Friday, kind of outlining what's coming up, and then the five younger guys, including Arnold Allen and Mavsari Vloyev, who are working their way up and, and the names to really pay attention to as the next generation. I think the best case scenario for Josh Emmett, and it's, it's a need two things to happen situation, is that he needs Alexander Volkanovsky to retain his title, and he needs Brian Ortega to beat Yair Rodriguez, because then we have a champion and a presumptive sort of the next top guy at the division that he's already beaten and beaten handily. And we don't need to see it again after Ortega gets, that would be one, two wins, I believe. And so in that 
in that regard, coming off a win over Calvin Cater with five straight victories and the tenure that he has, I can see the UFC doing the like, fine, it's his time, let's get him in there, Volk wants to fight again. But I agree with you and I sort of side on on the same side of you of, well, what about Arnold Allen? Because it's nine consecutive victories and it's a first round finish over Dan Hooker and not a controversial debated split decision win over Calvin Cater. But that's stuff that Dana and Sean Shelby and, and the crew at the UFC brass can make out. You mentioned the adjustments that everybody saw. And I think that was, was a point that the three of us kind of all picked up on in round three. And, and as the fight then continued to progress, what were the things that impress you the most when you watch that fight and you see those adjustments? What is it about that ability that makes, that differentiates, I guess, these athletes and this caliber of athlete from the rest of the pack? I think um, it just shows a level of cognition and it shows a level of mastery of your skills to be able to change on the fly. I think when you're doing anything, when you're skill building with anything, there's a level with which you start and you know nothing. And then you get to sort of an understanding of the breadth of, of skills. Let's take grappling, for instance, because that's the thing I could talk about the easiest. When you first start as a white belt, you learn you know, you know nothing, essentially. You may have watched some stuff on, on, on YouTube or you may have watched some stuff from MMA or maybe you watched some grappling before, but you essentially know nothing from a physical skill standpoint. You then get a small taste that you start to build some skills. You'll probably favor one thing, one position, one submission over all other position or submissions. You'll then become attuned to one guard or one pass. And then as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, you start to see the breadth of the landscape, a breadth of the skills. You start to see a bit more of what guard play is. You start to see more of what top game is. You see more of back control, mount, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a level of expertise when you're really deep in the game where you can oscillate between all of them. And instead of just doing the thing that you like and are good at, you can uh, attribute a skill to a problem and you can switch and offer different dilemmas based on the problems that are being given to you right and this is where like the concept of, of speaking a language when you learn a language eventually that language and the conversation you can have is poetic and fluent and fruitful whereas when you're first starting to learn how to speak the language you might be able to say hello my name is x right the adjustments that we saw in that fight, specifically from Josh Emmett, I think, and then Calvin Kayser encounter was really, really beautiful. Josh Emmett comes out in round one and does Josh Emmett, right? Kater, as we spoke about in the live stream, kind of takes the first round off of most fights in a five-round fight, at least recently, just to do the Floyd Mayweather thing where he gets his reads and then he starts to, to up the volume and pick apart the things that he's found. 
Second round, I felt like Calvin Cater did that pretty well. He started to up the volume. He stuck the jab in quite often. That's where the cuts started. That's where the blood started. He started to sit down on a little bit more of his punches. Round three, Josh Emmett came out and began to stalk a little bit more, began to plod into range rather than exploding into range, which is the read that, that Cater would, one of the reads that Cater had made initially. Round four, Cater comes back out and starts throwing in elbows, starts throwing a few leg kicks, starts changing the angle with which he's throwing shots in. Round five, both of them are bloody both of them are tired josh emmett just says ah fuck this lads my adjustment is i'm going to go balls to the wall here and i'm going to try and win this fucking fight and calvin cater says that's cool i'm going to do the same right right so it's you know what you get here is you could write a novel out of this out of that story arc out of the 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 just the adjustments alone that is uh, as poetic a story arc as you will find the crescendo of the fight comes when both men have exposed the souls of themselves they've allowed out all of their menu options in their arsenal they've unloaded all the clips and what's left is heat rising from the guns that they have and they're both standing there like what have you got left Right. And Josh, I'm like, first and foremost, everybody, this is why I have Harry do this show with me. I can't say those things. I can't describe it that way. Crescendos and story arcs. What you get at the end is, is Josh Emmett inviting Calvin Cater to the center of the cage and giving him, giving him the Max Holloway, giving him the like right here and Cal doing the like, nah, man, I'm, I'm up in this fight. Why, why do I want to come and give you a chance for 15 seconds to just bomb on me? As it turns out, he was not up in that fight and he did not win that fight, but these things happen in MMA and we will, we will discuss them. At a later date, I will, let's be honest, I'm going to sit down and rewatch that fight tomorrow and do a, a full-blown rewatch post because I'm a maniac like that. We move to the co-main event, though. Kevin Holland goes out and does what I would call Kevin Holland things for the level of opponent he was facing, submits Tim Means, gets a good win. Everybody on Twitter just goes wild and says, get him in there with the top 15 guy. We ran through the top 15 on our live stream being like, nah, he can't beat any of these guys. We also had some conversations during the fight, and this is this is the stuff I want to focus on for us here on this podcast week to week, is the actual like physical and the, the skill, the talent, the stuff that you focus on and that you look to more so than the things that I talk about in terms of narrative and things like that. You made a couple of very good points about Kevin Holland. One, the athletic talent is clear but his movements and the way he sort of controls or, or fails to control himself inside the cage kind of puts him in some dangerous positions and is a thing that you're cognizant of as you watch him that makes him maybe a little bit limited in terms of what he's doing going forward. Correct? Yeah. I mean, if I were to be, if I'm to go full psychology here, it feels as though some of the the shtick that he comes to the cage with is a is a a band aid for the some of the deficiencies in his physical game, right? 
Like it feels as though when you watch him, when you like watch the first sort of 30 seconds to 45 seconds of the Tim Means fight, he looks a bit nervous. He's not really sitting on his shots. His feet aren't really under him in the way that they usually are. His stance is very long. His cadence in his stance is very long and wild. And he looks a little bit like Bambi. Sometimes his feet are too close together or he's bouncing around in a little bit of an awkward way. And then about, I don't know, two minutes in, two minutes, 10 in, I think he realizes that actually I'm a lot better than this guy. I'm actually a lot better than this guy in pretty much every facet. He was taken down a few times, means wasn't able to hold him down in any meaningful way. Uh, that was a really nice wrinkle that we got to see from Kevin Holland. No shit talking. He just got inside wrist control, inside bicep control, and just got up, right? Which is what you want to see. Landed some knees in the clinch, backed out the right side, carried on fighting. Great. Perfect. Um, and then we started to see him slide into range, slide out of range, pick an angle, sit down on his shots a little bit, land a little bit more than one, have a bit of variety, look for a bit of, you know, look for a bit of venom in those shots, be a little bit mean with them. And, you know, then the shit talking, the volume makes more sense, right? It's then, an, an, you know, it's an attribute rather than it's a, it's a plaster or, or it's a cover for something else. And I mean, the finish itself was, was pretty nice, to be honest. The sprawl at an angle offers the neck. I don't think Tim Means was, was uh, at 100% cognition. He'd taken a bit of damage. He'd taken a bit of punishment. And um, I'm not saying he wanted out of there by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, there wasn't much of a fight. What Tim, you know, essentially to, to stop a DAS or to, 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 to delay a DAS is you do what Tim Means did immediately, which is open up your shoulder and you, you can grab the hip from a front headlock situation. And Kevin Holland, you know, brushed that off with the tiniest of hip switches and, and Tim Means was tapping immediately. So, you know, I'm not saying that it wasn't tight. I'm sure it was. But you go back to Jack Della Maddalena, right, who, who was in a pretty tight DAS uh, last week and he was doing everything he could. Now, it was different. You know, uh, Della Maddalena had head height and hip height, which is obviously a significant help here. But, but you know, Tim Means is a wily veteran. He knew what was going on there. Um, but either way, you know, Kevin Holland came out and again, made the adjustments, whether that was just a confidence adjustment turn, confident confidence adjustment internally to allow him to steady himself, calm his breathing, calm his brain a bit, and then go to work. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's smart adjustments and there's quality things that that we needed to see from Kevin Holland, especially in those clinch and in those wrestling situations that were the poison for him against. Marvin Vittori and Derek Brunson and to a lesser extent, even the like 90 seconds, two minutes that he had with Kyle Dacus where he's losing those clinch exchanges. And I'm as a guy that has written extensively about the struggles and challenges and conundrum that Kevin Holland is to me. I give him full marks for doing the right things in those instances. He's not, you know, open hand slapping at the side of Tim means head while Tim Means is digging under hooks and looking to put him on the ground. He's doing the correct steps to extricate himself from that position. I do think that some of that wildness, some of that off-balanceness is going to cost him, though, because I think those are some of the moments when we saw them in those kind of bigger fights that he lost a couple of years back or last year that he puts himself out of position and he puts himself into situations where against these high level guys that people are saying, let's get him in there with, or that he's calling out 
in Sean Brady. If you throw a right hand and stumble about because you're off balance, because you're reaching, because your feet aren't going with you, and as you said, they're too close to get whatever the case may be, Sean Brady or Shavkat Rachmanov or Jeff Neal or any of these guys in the top 15 are either A, smashing you with a right hand because your head is down and you're off balance, B, taking your back, or just doing something to make you pay for those mistakes. And I think the thing for me with Kevin Holland right now, and it's been this way throughout his career, because you can see the athletic talent, you can see the raw materials. It's I now want to see the refinement. I'm at the point where I want to see the rest of these mistakes go away. And I think what you said about the shit talking and the swagger in there being kind of a cover-up, being kind of a, a mask for some of these deficiencies is a terrific point because that's what it looks like to me. That's what it feels like to me. He knows there's a little bit of limitation, but if I can get in this guy's head, if I can throw them off by doing these things, it makes up for these areas where I'm a little bit weak. Right, and I think, think about the, the other guy that did that covered his deficiency. It was Chael Sonnen, right? Like Chael Sonnen was a good fighter, a good wrestler, but he had deficiencies. He really did have deficiencies. You know, the, the two guys that shit talked a lot, but had less deficiencies for me, are Conor McGregor and John Jones, right? But John Jones only was shit talking sort of in the, the, after the apex of his initial rise in his career, whereas Conor was using it, it felt completely naturally, right? It didn't feel as though it was, ah, uh, fuck, like maybe my takedown defense isn't as good as I think it is. Therefore, I'm going to try and blah, blah. No, it, it didn't feel like that. And I'm not saying that because I work for an Irish MMA out outlet either. I just think that there are some guys that talk and it's part of their game. It's an attribute. It's a skill set to their game. And then there are other guys that talk to hide things. I think something that you mentioned on the live stream, and we're going to start making these live streams public. So, so, you know, lads can come in and enjoy them and, and, and contribute as well is uh, in MMA now being a Tim means level of athlete. And that's no disrespect whatsoever is not good enough anymore. Unless you're a, Kevin Holland, a Demira Ishmalagulov, a, a, a Kutu Deladze, a, you know, a Jeremiah Wells, a Joaquin Buckley level of athlete, or a Cater or an Emmett level of athlete, that's the, that's the entry level now. That's an entry level to get you to the upper echelons of MMA. Yeah. And I think that for Kevin Holland specifically, there's an interesting dichotomy that I'm going to be watching quite closely over the next few fights. Do I think he goes in and, and beats anyone in the top 15? I mean, we talked a little bit about maybe the Wonder Boy fight, but other than that, if he gets the Sean Brady matchup, I'd be very, very, very shocked if it goes past a couple of rounds, right? Because something that we saw in the Cater fight, the Cater Emmett fight and the Kutuzaladze Ishmagulov fight was the same thing that we saw with Joanna and Whaley 1 and Joanna and Whaley 2. And that was 
forced and unforced errors. That's a big thing that you see in tennis, right? It's a big stat they put up that a forced or an unforced error. The big difference is if you make an unforced error in MMA, you're getting some form of, you know, molten bone coming at you. And in tennis, you might just lose a point and a man in a nice Fred Perry top puts his hand up for a point. Like the, the, the conjecture and the, the risk that comes with the highest levels of fighting is that people are trying, people aren't just putting their game to your game. People are trying to force you to make mistakes within your own game. And they're trying to lay traps for you to make mistakes in their game that then they can punish you with. Kevin Holland is punishing himself. Right. Very good way to put it. And it is very much a thing that, that we will continue to watch for, continue to talk about on this podcast. I, I, I respect the call out. I appreciate having the, the moxie to stand there on ESPN and ask for Sean Brady. I, I just, you know, you, that, that feels like a be careful what you wish for kind of situation to me, but we'll, we'll see what happens. We touched on this fight a little bit earlier with, with Albert Duraev's giant colossal, you know, Easter egg of an eye. But Joaquin Buckley's athleticism blew you away in watching it and, and was another one of those moments for me where it's, okay, I see all the raw materials. Now, now get me to this consistently because that was an outstanding performance that was just kind of really an example of what you were just talking about in terms of this is the new level of athleticism you need to have just to get to this middle pack. This is what sets you apart. Albert Dariah, very good fighter, into his 30s now, had a few years off before coming back and winning on the contender series, getting to this point. Good wrestler, good grappler, no match for an athlete in Joaquin Buckley with less experience, less time in the cage, but all the athleticism and explosiveness that sets him apart in that fight. Yeah, I mean, you know, Alexa plays Shakira's discography, right? I'm going to dine out on that joke for at least the next six months. Um, Brilliant joke. But like my, my thought on this is, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I would say Dariav is a very good fighter. I think he's a good fighter, but I think like we spoke about earlier, he's very limited. You know, he's very limited in his deficiencies. And to your point, and it's, it's the same in all things, right? If you go and you look at soccer, right? And you say, well, we've got two equally skilled players. I'll ask you who the better athlete is. And that's probably going to be the one that's the most successful, right? If you look at Albert Duraev and you look at Joaquin Buckley, it was very clear just them standing next to each other who was the supreme athlete. And then when they started to do the fighting, you know, the matchup itself was tailor-made for Buckley. Duraev isn't going to throw four, five, six-punch combos from different angles. He's not going to throw leg kicks to body kicks to, to jabs up top to, you know, to then mix in his grappling and off the grappling. He's not going to strike on the break. He's not going to be transitioning fluidly. It's going to be a, I might throw six jabs around and I might shoot twice. But other than that, I'm going to pressure you with my footwork and hope that you give me an opening for a shot. Well, for Buckley, he can throw 18 jabs around and do enough to, you know, bat Duraev away and still have enough in the gas tank to sprawl, you know, with enough 
venom to you know cause a Richter scale reading six months down the line. Um, so I, I was impressed with Buckley. I was impressed with his athleticism, but I was more impressed with his decision making and his awareness in the cage. Something that, excuse me, sorry, something that we have uh, we've seen previously with Buckley is he falls in love with his own athleticism a little bit too much, and you see him headhunting, you see him looking for the big shot, you see him, you know, the William Knight fight, right? It was like two action men just waiting for somebody's gas tank to fall over, and I think for that. For Joaquin Buckley, the thing that impressed me was his his sort of acceptance of who he is, the acceptance of, yes, I am a supreme athlete. Yes, I do have these abilities, but actually that's not enough to get me to the supreme level in fighting. If he'd have made poor decisions against Duraev and still had the athleticism, eventually those sprawls would have ran out. And by the end of the right. second or maybe the start of the third, we would have seen Duraev start to pick up the pace and we would have seen some of the success in his shots. But because Buckley was doing so well at making the right decisions at the right time, the same vein of, of, of conversation we're having with Kevin Holland, that there's no messing around and there's no uh, adverse decision making. He's just confident in his skill sets. He's confident in where he should be at the right times. And he's punishing Duraev, which is the, the, the next addition, the next sort of up the ladder, up the next climb up the rung of the ladder of skill set is he's punishing Duraev in positions after being defensive. And that was one of the things I found the most impressive. Which brings us to the lightweight fight that we were all looking forward to that I think was, you know, the, the number one or number two fight for us, for, um, you know, fight nerds, dorks like us that really enjoy you know, the technical side of this, that know these names, that pay attention to these names, even when they're not big names. And that's Demir Ishmagulov and Goram Kutatuladze. A terrific fight, a close fight. We got weird scores initially. It was a split decision, um, or it was a majority decision initially. They corrected that after the fact to a split decision. Ishmagulov wins. He's now won an agreed, like a ridiculous 19 consecutive fights. 24 and one overall five and zero in the UFC. If you read anything I write, you know how I feel about win streaks of that size and, and nature. They don't come by happenstance. They don't just, if they were easy, more people would do it. I think this was a fight where both athletes come away. Stock rises. I think we look at it and go, both of these guys are going to be here where they are for the next several years if not further ahead, this is now the baseline. We will hear from them going forward. And I know for both of us in watching that fight, the, the cleanliness of Demir Ishmagulov's work, the polish of his, his offensive game was a thing that really stood out and continues to stand out every time he's in the octagon. Yeah, he's a proper motherfucker, isn't he? <laughs> he really is, like... That's a fight that I think needs real study because, again, it's a shame that it wasn't five rounds. It's a shame that we couldn't have seen it just develop just a touch more. Um, I think that there's so many things that I missed in that fight. That fight to me was the new Kendrick Lamar album. You listen to it once and you're like, fuck me, this is good. And then you listen to it twice and you're like, there's an entire different story I missed here. And then when you go stanza by stanza, frame by frame, paragraph by paragraph, paragraph verse by verse, bar by bar, 
you start to really look at through your microscope and you start to really get the dregs and the veins and the core fibers of what's happening. And I think when you watch two fighters of this level, there is so much that we will have missed live. One, because neither of us and not many humans on this earth are at the skill level that those guys are. So to recognize it, we're going to need to take a lot of time and a lot of study but also because, you know, we're watching it in real time. We're getting caught up in the emotions of it. We're, you know, talking about it as it's happening. We're trying to score. We're trying to tweet. We're trying to, we're trying to, we're trying to, we're trying to. But the overarching thing that I was just in awe of was the cleanliness of both of their work, frankly, the variety of both of their work. But also, again, I sound like a broken record, but the decision-making and the ability to lay traps and punish the opposition fighter for falling into those traps was just out of this fucking world. Like, I don't think you sound like a broken record. I think it's actually part of what I hope and want this podcast to, to become and develop into. I want people to come here on, on Sundays or Mondays or whenever they get around to listening to it, please. Thank you. We appreciate you listening to it. Subscribe to the newsletter is that they know they're going to get these conversations and they're going to get this, this kind of breakdown of things because this is the stuff that we're not doing as prominently in the field and in the space on a Sunday morning, on a Monday morning. We are moving to the next fight and the next matchup or the next event for that matter. And I want people to be able to come here and listen to your insights and and wise intelligent breakdown of these fights the thing that stands out to me with this magulov and, and i said it off the top is just there's there's a cleanliness to the way he works nothing is forced nothing is overthrown everything is just precision and it's precision jab it's precision counters it's the movements are all sharp. The low kick is snapping and everything comes back the right way. If you're ever watching fights or listening to people talk about fights and there's things that they talk about that you're like, wait, I don't know what that is. And you want to see the, the correct. So like, oh, he doesn't bring his hand back fast enough or he doesn't get that kick back quick enough. Go and watch this performance by Demirish Mugulov and you will see the hands come back to where they're supposed to be at all times and quickly. The kick goes out and it comes back right away. He's not admiring anything. He doesn't hang out kind of watching his work at all. One, because he's technical and 31 years old and 25 fights into his professional career and all of those things. Two, he recognizes the monster standing across from him that is thumping heavy kicks into his body and smashing heavy elbows into his head. I think anybody that, that looks at this fight and comes away and goes, well, maybe Guram Kutatsaladze isn't as good as everybody let on is mistaken because that dude, as you said about Ishmagulov, is also, in fact, a proper motherfucker. Yeah, he's a proper motherfucker as well. I mean, I mean, how do you even describe Guram Kutatsaladze? I think... The, the main difference I would say actually is variety. The variety and the breadth of options that Kutu Taladze has 
I would say is is superior to Ishmagulov, but that's not a detriment to Ishmagulov. I think actually, if you're Ishmagulov and you have a jab, a cross, a hook, a low kick, a body kick, and you put together a million fight winning streaks, that tells you just how beautifully crisp, beautifully precise, and beautifully well-drilled those specific techniques are. Now, Kutataladze is easier on the eye to watch for somebody that just wants to see mad fighting, right? The, the left body kick, the right low kick, you know, he throws them both in a very Ernesto Hoost way where he's looking to just chop a tree down there. And then the strikes, the elbows, the grappling transitions, the work on the ground, like all of it's just a, just a myriad of Jackson Pollock-esque canvas work, right? And that's, I think, why this fight was so intriguing, as you have two incredibly high-level strikers, two incredibly high-level MMA technicians going together in a, in a completely different style. Now, I have no idea really how to score that fight, I would need to go back and watch it a number of times and I might come up with, with different, uh, different decisions each time. Now, you know, the main event and this one, both split decisions. And I think probably rightfully so. I might have been right. overconfident in calling Cater the first time, but in the, in the, the Kutu Taladze, the Ishmagulov fight, I scored round one for, I think it was Kutu Taladze and then round two for Ishmagulov or could have been the other yeah. round, I forget. But round three was as close a round as you're going to find, <laughs> right? And there were rounds like that in, in the Cater and Emmett fight as well, right? Round one, I think, was the only only clear round and that's because Cater was making his reads and, and you know, Emmett landed a few shots, fine. But even that can be contested because Cater was landing a couple of jabs. But I don't want to do the judging thing or whatever. But... Yeah, just when you put two extremely high-level MMA technicians in a cage and you lock the door and you say, go on then, you know, do do the thing. This is what you get. And it's just, as you know, judging aside, it's beautiful to watch. So the last fighter, the last fighter from this card that I want to really kind of just tuck into you and I before we talk to a, a little bit of the kind of overarching thing that we were talking about off air that I think is is worth discussing is Adrian Yanez, who is somebody that I don't think we are at differences of opinions, but I think he is somebody that for me, my, my fandom of him, my enjoyment of the way he fights and what he's done thus far kind of over exceeds my analytical watching of him. Whereas you come, as you've said, and as, as people that are starting to follow this and follow, you know, from that analytical point, while you enjoy his handiwork, you look at the analytical piece and go, well, but there's these questions. And so walk me through some of the, the questions or the like decision-making pieces that not necessarily trouble you about Adrian Yanez, but are things for him and people watching him to pay attention to going forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll just state this now, like something that I've learned from uh, Sean and Graham and yourself and Ian is predominantly that when I'm watching fights as a media member, I can't watch them as a fan. I can't do both. I just can't. It's not, it doesn't, 
reflect well on the work that I do from a professional standpoint. And it will almost always like cause me to have uh, a lapse in judgment. Right. And that's very difficult for me because there are some fighters that before I started covering this were fighters that I really admired and really looked up to. Rose Namajunas is a perfect one. Um, she was somebody that that I absolutely adored her fighting style. Uh, and when I began to put a more professional hat on, I had to to disassociate myself from that. Right. There are I'm sure there are fighters for you and I'm sure there are fighters for Ian and Shawnee, especially, you know, Irish lads that these guys literally know. Right. Um, so when they go out and fight, I, I suspect it's very hard to put the professionalism hat on and, and do the thing without without the practice. Right. But Adrian Yanez, uh, what, what are the things that that, that worry me? Um, and again, worry is the wrong word because that's an emotional thing. And I try not to look at it that way. But the deficiencies in Adrian Yanez's game as it stands right now is he just gets hit too much. He he has a style that works really well about a round and a half in. About a round and a half in, when he's taken the first 5 to 10% off his opponent's energy bar, and they've felt a bit of his power, and they've felt that he's not going anywhere, despite how hard they hit him, and they feel that, oh, actually, if I throw at this lad, he's going to counter me with a variety of different things, and he's going to be in my face from minute one, I think that slightly saps some of the confidence, but oftentimes you find him with his feet slightly too close together or he spends too long in the pocket or the head movement comes before the shots do and he gets caught with shots that he shouldn't get caught with, or he's spending too much time admiring the shots that he throws and he gets cracked by it, or he starts too slowly in the Tony Kelly fight. The thing that I was concerned of is that Tony Kelly starts very, very, very quickly. He stands very long in his stance. He's quite big for the weight class and he's very aggressive. Now, that's not how the fight played out in actuality. And I think that was to, to Yanez's, uh, something we should praise because I think Tony Kelly understood very quickly. If I go in there like a bull on horns, he's going to catch me. He's going to catch me often. But for me in the Davy Grant fight and in the Randy Costa fight, you know, in the Randy Costa fight specifically, he was getting absolutely bet the fuck out of his face was a mess from those jabs he took a myriad of jabs in the first round and did nothing with it right? right just kept coming forward the head movement just he was like ah fuck it i'll just eat these shots against strikers with a little bit more power a little bit more variety than a randy costa they're gonna hit you with three jabs and be like i can hurt this dude that's a problem right it's a little bit similar to what we're talking about with with Kevin Holland of you can get away with it at this level you can get away with it against the guys you are fighting now and anything even if you just look at whom Adrian Yanez has fought what those results are the toughest opponent he's faced to date is Davy Grant and it was a razor thin split decision super close fight because Davy Grant made him pay for a lot of that stuff Davy Grant offered a lot more variety there wasn't the Davy Grant isn't somebody at 36 or 37 years old that has been through a very difficult career in terms of injuries and opportunities that is going to get psyched out or bothered by Adrian Yanez's power or willingness to eat shots. He's going to look at it and go, great, you're going to stand here and I'm going to hit you with this left hook again and again, and one more time for good measure. Whereas Tony Kelly looked a little flustered pretty quickly in that fight. 
Randy Costa threw all those jabs and high kicks and Adrian Yanez was still standing there enjoying the fact that he was bleeding and and Randy Kelly Randy Costa excuse me sort of goes well now what and I think as we talked about during our live stream and both in this fight and with Kevin Holland going forward is where it becomes the problem you can get to certain levels and get away with these things but now that you're getting into the thick of it those more experienced, those more seasoned athletes are going to make you pay. So if you're working with Adrian Yanez, what are the corrections? What are the adjustments? What's the, give me the two top line bullet points of here's what you need to do to maximize this. Because I think we both agree talent wise and like intangible wise, there's something here with this kid. You always have to repay the debt eventually. That's the first line I would say to him. There is only so much mortgage you can take out on your chin before one day you're going to have to pay it back. And wasting the equity in your chin on guys that are not on your level is a ridiculous mistake. Toughness in MMA is going to become more and more and more and more a prominent attribute. But toughness is going to come in when technical proficiency is at an all-time high, right? Look at Cater and Emmett, both extremely proficient technicians. Look at Kutataladze and Ishmagulov, the highest of the high extreme technicians both of them tough as fucking nails and they took big shots in that fight not because they were making technical deficiency mistakes because they were just falling into traps that you're going to fall into adrian yanez is making technical mistakes and being punished he is wasting his his mortgage on his own chin with guys that he should just be blowing out of the water so that's my first that's my first point on him is stop wasting the mortgage. The second one is just take your time. Take your time and realize that you don't have to be in the pocket all of the time. Again, I'm going to go back to Cater and Emmett. The first two rounds, Cater put on a masterclass of being three inches out of the pocket, but feeling like he was in the pocket. Yanez right. needs to do the same. Yanez needs to learn that he's not a long fighter, although he fights like one. He needs to learn where his range is, and he needs to learn that the best way to block punches is to not get hit with them. And if you're just standing out of range, just out of range, and you can force your fighter to throw, and you can then either make your reads on what they're throwing based on the reaction of where your feet and your head and your body is, or immediately counter you're going to see Adrian Yanez take a lot less punishment and do a lot more punishment. So I think in terms of the fights themselves, that is a, a perfect way to cap. And that's, you know, no, no disrespect to anybody on, on the prelims. There's just a, a larger overarching thing that I want to discuss that'll actually bring in a bunch of these people in the prelims. And it's what we started talking about off air that I thought was a really salient point and one that, you know, we see and, and we encounter every week because the UFC runs every week. 
So you and I, as people that watch these fights and pay attention to these fights and write about these fights, we probably hold on to and retain some of the information from earlier in a fight card a little better than others because we are storing names and, and results and finishes and performances in our, you know, our own mental database because we're going to have to retrieve them at another point. But you said off air as we were talking about it, when you get to that main event and you're six hours in. And so for someone like you, it's, you know, half two in the morning, you're not remembering Phil Haas's performance. You're not remembering Roland Roman Delize off the jump with a beautiful clinch knee to Kyle Dacus that just dropped him. You're not remembering Ricardo. Maybe you're remembering Ricardo Ramos because you really enjoyed that spinning back elbow and the setup of it. But it feels like this is part of, I don't want to say the problem, but the challenge that we're facing going forward right now with MMA, with the UFC, having the schedule that it currently keeps is that these great performances early are getting chased by great performances late and by the most meaningful fights late. And by the time the smoke clears, you don't necessarily remember that they happened. I think this is a problem that's wider than MMA. I think this is a problem with the cognition level and the attention span of society. You know, the little brother to TikTok was Vine. And a Vine was max like 15 to 20 seconds or something, and it would just play on a loop. TikTok began in a similar fashion, but now has extended out the ability. I don't use TikTok, so I don't know what the length of video you can have, but I know it's longer than, than 15 to 20 seconds. But we're in a we're in a society, we're in a global consciousness now that expects things to come thick fast and easy to digest whilst a knockout or a submission is easy to digest when there's a plethora of them the attention span will you know if we talk about this from a computing perspective you can only hold a certain amount of data in ram before it gets passed to the cpu the cpu will then compartmentalize that to some form of hard drive if you deem it to be necessary and you choose for it to be saved it feels as though everyone is running incredibly high speed but very low memory ram you can only keep a tiny bit of information before it even gets to the CPU. We're so used to scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling that if at any moment our thumb stops for a, for a hot sec for us to digest a piece of information through RAM into the CPU, that there's a potential, the finite minute potential that we might get it to hard drive. And I think this is a problem that we have with, with MMA cards, specifically MMA cards like this. Um, there are so many brilliant finishes on this card, so many brilliant performances, so many storylines coming in and coming out of it. But the nature with which that we approach uh, information is such that so many of these storylines will be lost. Trending dangerously close to Harry's actual favorite topic of conversation and thing to discuss, AI. Don't get him started. Yeah, don't, don't do it. Don't. I mean, we'll, we'll get him started at some point. Go listen to some of the All About Balance podcast. He's got some good ones up there. He gets into it. He made me get into it when I was on the show. And I can't, I can't spar with him in that arena at all. The other piece of this that I think is, 
is interesting and, and sort of ties to what you're saying about society and social media and things like that is MMA is very much about sort of those viral moments, the virality of, and the populist opinion of, of these things, right? And so the more people that are watching are later in the fight, the more people that have an understanding of, of who did the thing and what that thing means is later on the further up the card we get in terms of name recognition and closer to the main event. And that sort of contributes to it as well. There's less people in the building to see Roman Delize's knockout, to see Ricardo Ramos's knockout, to see Jeremiah Wells get his third straight finish, right? Like he's coming off two great performances and there was very, very little chatter about Jeremiah Wells going into this fight. Knocks out Court McGee with a left hand, only the second person to finish Court McGee in the UFC, the first being Santiago Ponzinibbio, which tells you the quality of class Jeremiah Wells is in with that performance. But it's not a thing that's going to be a major discussion point coming out of this event, because after that, we had Adrian Yanez. We had, you know, the great lightweight fight. We had everything that followed it on the main card. And it feels like we're missing and we're losing out on some of those moments and some of those things that should be committed to the hard drive, that should be tucked away because they're just not registering with us enough as popular, important, viral moments the way some of these other things are. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I also think there's a, you know, there's a part of this where the UFC has a set media schedule too, right? So there's only so much shit you can pump out at any one time. We had nine brutal finishes on this card. A card of 13 fights with two razor close, razor, razor, razor close finishes. Uh, sorry, race close decisions, and then nine insane knockouts or insane finishes, right? And there's only so much content that the UFC can push out and they have to pick and choose. You know, Joaquin Buckley is third from the top or should have been fourth from the top, but what is third from the top, not because of his skill level, but because he brutalized Impa Kasanganai in the way that he did, right? Like, and that's no disrespect whatsoever, but that was one of the most played clips that the UFC has ever put out right. ever. Right. Right. And that's what, you know, you mentioned name recognition and, and whatever. Well, people know who Joaquin Buckley is now. He tried the same thing against Duraev, right? But Duraev didn't catch the kick and fair fucking play to him. I wouldn't right. bother either. I wouldn't catch it either. Nah, I'm getting all, I'm going to try and vault over the cage if he tries to throw one of those at me. Yeah, no fucking chance. But the, the, this is the catch straight two that we come to, right? Is right. a lot of those finishes are, exceptionally good promotional material for these fighters but we're in such a we've got such a brilliant problem which is actually we had so much virality coming out of this card right that there's almost too much to promote and that if you're the ufc is the best problem that you could ever possibly have is you've got too many good fighters doing too many good things of the fighting right, right. like well and and it's it feels it feels fitting for this card that we kind of talk about as a hangover card coming off a brilliant pay-per-view event in Singapore where we're all excited and we come away with, you know, great finishes and great performances or lots to talk about. And we've got to jump into this right away, but we can't because there's just too much to talk about. So it becomes kind of Wednesday or Thursday when we start to tuck into this one and then we get this, 
but now we've got to move on. And it just, as you said, it's that kind of avalanche that really starts building that snowball that starts building of now these next couple of days when we should be starting to ramp up for June 25th and Armin Saryukin and Matoish Gamrat, we've got all of this stuff to talk about still coming out of this event. And so that gets rolled down the hill a little bit further away. And I think the, the where it stops is when we get that one card somewhere along the way that just doesn't quite deliver, that kind of just falls flat, that gives us, you know, the Holly Holm, Ketlin Vieira card didn't have a lot of finishes, didn't have a lot of excitement. We got something to talk about, but really it was just one of those things that absolute dorks like me and Sean and whoever cares about judging as much as we do get to really dive in about. But now this is, this is, as you said, the best problem to have. Hey, there's all of this great stuff to talk about because there's not really a fight on this card and I'm, I'm pulling it up in front of me. There's not really a fight on this card outside of maybe the Maria Oliveira and Gloria DePaula fight where there's nothing to talk about. Even the fight between Natalia Silva and, and Jasmine Jasuda Vicious, that's a, that's a very impressive you know, sort of first performance, understanding the level of, of where they're at for Natalia Silva, but a performance that you go, all right, let me, I want to see this person, or I go, I want to see this person again. And so you've had 13 fights where essentially 12 of them have delivered something that most people are going to want to see. As you said, pretty good problem to have going forward. Yeah, fucking awesome problem to have. Awesome problem. And I think that, that this is is one of the the great things about being a fan and one of the the real upsides to having a plethora of cards is the UFC can kind of just roll the dice and something good will almost certainly happen on every card. Um you know we are but Tudor kings at a gluttonous banquet of wonderful MMA-ness, right? And at the end of the day there are cards that happen like this where just everything chimes perfectly and the card builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds, not in the same way as uh, I think it was the card to two seven five, I think was a real builder yeah. and really felt like it, it traversed Absolutely. through the momentum. But this one, you know, you have viral knockout after viral knockout after viral knockout after viral knockout after viral submission after this, after that, like, it felt as though the momentum of the finishes drove the car, drove the fans, drove us as media members, drove us as fans all the way through. And the excitement kept up and there was just something in the air, right? Even the fight with uh, Maria Oliveira and Gloria DePaula, like, okay, from a technical perspective, it wasn't at the level of some of the other fights, but it was still action packed. It was still fun. Both right. those ladies still went to war. They still, they, you know, they still fought tooth and nail for that fight. Natalia Silva still put an absolute beating on Jasmine Yazdavisikis. I've just butchered her name and I'm not going to try it again. So like even all of those, there was like a, you re you'll remember Dana used to go, the stories of Dana used to go in the changing rooms of each one and be like, look, we want a really good fight card. Remember, there's money on the line here. Go out and do a job for the company. We'll look after you sort of thing. Like a pep talk and a, and a sort of a promotional a, a bit, if you will, to, to G up these fighters to really go out and put a performance on. It felt as though as every fighter went out and came back, when Roma Delidze came back into his changing room, lads would have been like, fuck me, that was a serious finish. 
And then from Delidze, you then have fucking Phil Hawes come out and he comes back in and his cornerman and his changing rooms are like, Jesus, we got to go and follow that now. Then Cody Staman beats a skeleton of a man and, and a ghost of Eddie Wineland. And it just builds and builds and builds, right? And I think for us as, as media members, yes, it's important for us to say there are too many cards. We can't cover these fighters in as much depth as we want. But we also must be cognizant that we're in an era of MMA where we are entirely gluttonous in the amount of technical appreciation, technical level, and the era of MMA we're in right now, yes, it's busy. Yes, there's a lot of it. But fuck me, is there some good fighters? And that's the part that I, and I know I get sort of the grief from people at times about always positive and always, always looking for the silver lining. The reason I do is fight cards like this. And I know that there are ones where I'm going to be mistaken and my optimism is going to, it, the, the ebb and flow and the crash of my optimism not coming through is greater because I, I'm going into everything hopeful and expectant that we're going to get something that delivers. And when it doesn't, it feels like even more of a slog and even more of a letdown because I was hopeful, but I go in hopeful because events like this happen. And as a fan, I would rather, and as somebody that, that spends my Saturdays and dedicates my Saturdays to sitting here and watching six or seven hours of, of UFC fights every Saturday, I would rather go into it excited and hopeful that these people that I know are the best athletes that have ever been in the UFC and that the level is the best overall it has ever been in the UFC are going to deliver than sit here and go, oh my God, another show. Oh my God, we, we have to sit through more of this. Y'all don't have to do anything. You don't have to watch. You don't have to get excited. But it boggles my mind that you fly the fight fan flag and you claim avid UFC supporter on your Twitter and it's your Twitter handle. And yet you, you don't have hope. You don't get excited. You don't allow yourself to be, as Harry said, a gluttonous king sitting at a beautiful banquet. And maybe sometimes that food isn't as enjoyable as you wanted or the stuff that's on the menu isn't, isn't necessarily to your taste that day. But on the whole, we are in the best time ever when it comes to UFC action, when it comes to the performances we're getting inside the cage, when it comes to the level of athlete and technical proficiency of these athletes. And for me, I'm always going to be excited about that. I'm always going to look forward to it. I'm going to lead off punch drunk predictions going into an event like this that just says the first line is, you know what I'm going to say. And it's that this card is one of those ones that feels like it's going to deliver. And boy, oh boy, did it deliver. Yeah, I mean, I am certainly not as optimistic as you are. Uh, I never am. That's just my character. But I, I try to call a spade a spade. I try to be as balanced as I can be. And I'll give praise to a card when I think that it delivers, you know, more than I expected or even just delivers as I expected. But I'm somebody that tries to go in uh, with no expectations 
And I just try to go in and, and look at the card as it is. And I think that it's something that I both don't understand how you can do it because, you know, that level of optimism just doesn't equate <laughs> sense in my brain. But it's also something that I'm slightly envious of because, you know, yes, the, the, the when a card fucking absolutely dumpster fires, it hurts more than if you had nothing, no expectations. But I think that, and this is one of the reasons why I think that you and the Severe MMA guys work well together is because there are elements of the Severe MMA guys who are more pessimistic than you are optimistic, right? Then there's some guys who are straight down the middle. And I think you, some of the pessimism shaves off some of your uh, insane optimism and equally some of your optimism boosts some of the insane pessimism and everyone then sort of gets to a position where you we try to call a spade a spade right like on these preview right. shows Sean will be like this is a fucking shit card and I'll be like actually it's all right and you'll be like this is the best card I've ever seen <laughs> right <laughs> right and somewhere in between That's we come a fair to a representation and Ian sits there and goes all right let's discuss this Right, right. And Ian's like, well, actually, I think some of these are all right. And some of these are absolute garbage. And then he, generally, all of us, you know, come away we, with... We navigate it and get there. Yeah. Right. And I think that that's a, that's a marriage that works very well. But when we're talking more globally about these fights and the era that we're in and everything else, it's impossible to say that if we look at the overarching volume of skill that is in the UFC right now... We can't, there's no argument to say that it's ever been worse because it hasn't. We are in the best time. Now we can talk and we could do all the arguments you want about there's too many cards and there's this and there's that and the promotion and the this and the building and the that and the, the storylines and the whatever. That's fine. And we're probably all in agreement, frankly. I think the issue that most of us have and the critical issue we have is that matchmaking has less value than it used to. Because we have the plethora of fight skill that we have, because of the, the level of uh, brilliant people that are in this sport, that I think is where we, some, some of our issues come, right? I think that's where the main differences are. Like I try not to, uh, other than reading Keyboard Kimura, I try not to delve myself into any of that stuff because I think for me personally, it takes away from my analysis. Right. That's one of the reasons I don't look at judging, because I want to see what's happening in fights. I care less about what the judges think. Now, it's obviously it's something I have to think about, but I'm, you know, I'm rambling slightly. I think my point is that we are in an era of of the best fighters we've ever seen because the sport is as rich as it's ever been and it will only get better. Uh, but yeah, you are an insane optimist. That's all. I am. And I think that's a good place to end it is with insane optimism. As always, before we go, plug your stuff, tell people where to follow you so that it's not just me singing your praises. You can you can promote yourself without me making you blush and, and give me the wave off on camera of like, ah, you're saying too many nice things about me. All right, well, I'll do it, fine. Um, okay, I mean, you can, you can follow me if you want on Twitter. I am BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Uh, I write an article every week for Severe MMA called The Severe Spotlight. That comes out somewhere before midday on a Monday, uh, dependent on how quickly I can push the publish button. Uh, I 
I host a podcast called Speaker's Corner with the great Sean Sheehan over on Sphere MMA Patreon. Now and again, Sean will release one of the podcasts for free if he thinks that there's something, you know, uh, excessively interesting in there. There's a one right now that's free uh, on having an opinion in MMA and, and why that's important and the way to frame your opinions. Uh, I, funnily enough, I'm on this podcast because you're listening to me. And uh, yeah, I do other stuff. And, and uh, you can come and find me and ask me questions and tell me I'm wrong. Go find him. Go ask him questions. Go follow him. He is sharp. The reason he's on here is because in six months of getting to know him, he is one of the smartest people I, I know, both in this space and in general. He's giving me the bashful look now, so it's great. That means I'm, I'm hitting the mark. You know where to find me at Spencer Kite on all platforms because I'm lazy and have the same name everywhere and it's just easier. You know to find the Keyboard Kimura Substack, spencerkite.substack.com. Follow the Sphere MMA Patreon. Follow all of those lads. Most importantly, as always, as we wrap the show up, have yourself a good week. Know that you're loved. Take care of one another. And be good to one another. We'll see you next Sunday.